Good morning. Using an iPad here for the first time to preach, so let's hope it goes well. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit who gives us life through it. We pray even this morning that you would empower each one of us as we open up your word to um, receive from you what you would have for us. And I ask that you'd empower me by your spirit to give me the grace that I so desperately need in this moment. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, as a father, one of the greatest joys that I experience are those moments when I'm able to bring joy or pleasure to the hearts of my kids. Sometimes in simple ways, like slipping an unexpected treat into their lunchbox. Or in more significant ways, like planning a vacation with them, especially in mind. Seeing the sparkle in their eyes Seeing the smile on their face, hearing the joy in their laughter brings me joy as their father because I love them and I love to see them filled with joy. It's generally true that the more you love a person, the more joy you experience in bringing them pleasure. As Christians, there's no one we love more than God himself, and therefore it follows that there's no one we should find greater joy in bringing pleasure to and delighting than God. But that sort of begs the question, can we actually please the God of the universe? And if so, how? Well, the good news is that on the one hand, because we as Christians are adopted sons and daughters of God, dearly loved by him, we are always in God's good pleasure. His face always is smiling on us because of Jesus, and that is good news, is it not? And yet, on the other hand, we do discover in Scripture that there are certain evidences of God's grace in our lives that that seem to especially please God when he sees them in us. Much like I, as a father, love my children unconditionally, full stop. But there are moments where I may see something in them that that fills me with particular delight. Like if I notice them uh, of their own accord, showing sacrificial love to a friend or a sibling. My heart just wells with joy, right? Well, in the same way, our Father in heaven experiences the same kind of delight when he sees certain fruits in us. And our text this morning in Hebrews 13 is one such example of that. You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. We'll start at the end of chapter 12, which is on page 1070, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles there. If you're newer to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. A little bit of the context of the book of Hebrews. It was originally written to first century ethnic Jews who had become followers of Jesus, but were experiencing significant trial, temptation, persecution, and even some shaming to the degree that some of them were shrinking back from following Jesus and returning to some form of their more comfortable Jewish traditions. 
So the book of Hebrews is written to urge them and us not to turn away from Jesus. To persevere in following him and trusting him because Jesus alone is God's all-sufficient provision for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, for a right standing with God, and for our ongoing spiritual growth. It's all in him and through him. There's nowhere else to turn. And throughout the letter, he also demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrificial system that the Jews were being tempted to return to. They all pointed to Jesus as the one true sacrifice, the final and only atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, the message culminates there in chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, with this real sobering description of the future day of the Lord, the same day that Jesus spoke of in John 5, which Kevin preached on just last Sunday morning, the day in which God will bring redemptive history to conclusion through Jesus' final act of eternal judgment and salvation. Verse 26 and 27 depicts this in a real, with real powerful imagery as though God takes the entire universe and just shakes it. And as he does, everything will fall away except that which belongs to the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. Now look at the incredible news shared at the beginning of verse 28. Therefore, since we, those who walk by faith in Jesus, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are recipients of this eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. It belongs to us. Now, Christian friend, I wonder, when was the last time you've paused to reflect on that reality? That God's unshakable kingdom is yours. Do you believe that? As you reflect on this, you will find your heart filled with the kind of humble gratitude mentioned there in verse 28. Let us be thankful, and flowing out of that thankfulness will be a desire to demonstrate and live out that thankfulness through our lives. Because here's the thing. The kingdom of God refers to the rule and reign of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Though it is not yet consummated in its fullness, like it one day will be, it exists today, and we are citizens of that kingdom now. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says that God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We live in his kingdom now. And so that reality should shape how we live our lives today. Specifically, it should compel us, as verse 28 says, to live lives of service. Or as some of your translations probably say, by it we may worship God. Because that's really a better word there for that term serve. That's the idea. It's the idea of worship. We may worship God acceptably in a manner that pleases God. That brings him delight that is acceptable to him with reverence and awe. By grace, our very lives can be expressions of worship to God that brings him pleasure. Not as a means of earning citizenship in heaven, but because we already are citizens in heaven. 
And that's what Hebrews 13 is all about. He brings this book to a close by describing what it looks like to live a life of worship that brings pleasure to God. And so the main point of the sermon this morning is this. Bring pleasure to God through a life of worship. Bring pleasure to God through a life of worship. And Hebrews 13 provides three ways in which we can do this. First, we bring pleasure to God. We worship God by living according to kingdom values, verses 1 through 6. Second, we worship God and bring him pleasure by trusting in Jesus alone, verses 7 through 14. And then we worship God by bringing him pleasure through offering to him the sacrifices of praise and love, verses 15 and 16. So let's consider point number one, live according to kingdom values. And we're only going to touch on this, but the main idea of these six verses simply is this. If we are citizens of God's unshakable kingdom, then our lives should increasingly reflect the values of that kingdom and its king, Jesus. This is worship that pleases God as citizens of his kingdom. The text alludes to four values, love, faithfulness, contentment, and courage. And without question, the chief value of the kingdom of God is love. First, verse 1, love for one another within the family of God, the church. Notice verse 1, chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Love should characterize our relationships here at Grace Harbor Church, and praise God, to a large extent, they do. And that's good news. But that love must not become insular. It should also be directed outward, verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality. And that word literally has the idea of showing love to strangers. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. So hospitality here is a willingness to open our homes and lives to those outside our known network of family and friends, just like God has welcomed us into his family and kingdom. In the original context, it probably was a reference to Christians who would be traveling through your town. You didn't know them, but they needed a place to stay that was free from danger and temptation. And so you opened their home to them. But then third, like Christ's love for us, kingdom love is sacrificial. It's willing to enter into hard places and come alongside those who are suffering difficult things in order to extend to them the kind of sacrificial love that God has extended to us in Jesus. Verse 3, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. There should be nowhere in the city of Providence where people can find greater expressions of sacrificial love and hospitality than churches like Grace Harbor Church who believe the gospel of Jesus and profess to be part of his kingdom. The second value he mentions is there in verse 4, and that is of faithfulness in human sexuality. Specifically, as we align ourselves with God's design, that sexual intimacy be enjoyed only within the context of the marriage covenant. Verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. So the kingdom of God should provide a stark contrast to the trail of physical and relational pain and heartache that the so-called sexual revolution has left in its wake. And then the third value in verse 5 is contentment in Christ. 
Notice what verse 5 says. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. The king of our unshakable kingdom has given us this incredible promise. He is, he is present with us at all times and will never, no, never forsake us. And since we always have our king with us, we're set free from an obsession with acquiring more and more like the culture around us so often is. We have Jesus. He's enough for us. And then building on that promise, the fourth value is that of courage. We are citizens of God's kingdom, but we're living surrounded by the kingdom of this world, a kingdom whose values are often antithetical to God's values. And so the the dissonance that creates in our hearts can often create fear of the consequences of our devotion to Christ and what may occur because we follow him. But Jesus' presence with us should provide us as kingdom citizens with a humble courage to live out our faith in the face of the fear, knowing Christ himself will be our helper. Verse 6. Since Jesus is with us, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what man can do to me. So there are four not exhaustive but representative kingdom values. Love, faithfulness, contentment, and courage. And these values should be on display in our lives as individuals, in our families, in our church community. They're a means by which we worship God in a way that's pleasing to him. So a good question to ask is, do I see these values consistently present in my life? Now, as Christians, anytime we think about the commands of God or the values he calls us to live out, we tend to drift toward legalism. We often, if we see those values in our lives, we get puffed up. And we begin to think our standing before God is based on, look how good I'm doing, look what a good person I'm doing, and why aren't those people living like I am? If we're struggling in these areas, if we recognize like I do that I often fail to live up to the values that are expressed here, we often begin to hear the voice of shame and condemnation whispering into our hearts. You call yourself a kingdom citizen? You really think you're worthy You think that King Jesus actually loves you when you fall so far short? Do you ever hear those whispers? Maybe you're hearing them now, even as we've talked about these values. Well, if the Spirit is convicting you of failing to reflect one of these values consistently, then then receive that as a gift intended to bring you to repentance and confess it to God and to someone in the church and seek help and accountability. But don't listen to the voice of shame. God uses conviction of sin not to drive us to shame, but to drive us to Jesus because Jesus is the only source of our acceptance before God. And that brings us to point number two. Worship God by trusting in Jesus alone. And verses 7 through 14 is really the heart of this section and it reinforces the main point of the entire book of Hebrews Cling to Jesus. This is the way of God-pleasing worship in God's kingdom. It's Jesus. Look how he begins in verse 7. 
Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. So it begins by letting us know that God uses the lives of faithful Christians from the past as a means of grace to those in the present. These former leaders not only brought to them, in this context, the message of faith originally, but their lives matched that message. They walked by faith in Jesus throughout their lives, all the way to the end of their lives. And so the author says, imitate that kind of faith. Don't turn away. Just like your former leaders did, keep trusting him all the way to the end. And so when your faith is struggling... You would do well to remember, to consider, and then to imitate the testimony of faithful Christians who have gone before you and lived a faithful life to Christ, especially those who faithfully led you. That's why Christian biographies can also be so helpful as we read Christian history and study how God worked in people's lives in the past. Now, these former leaders were no longer present to guide and encourage them in their faith, But they can confidently imitate their example of faith because the person those leaders trusted still remains and never changes. Verse 8, incredible verse we hear all the time, but often out of the context. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't this good news? Jesus, our King who reigns in our kingdom, is today who he was yesterday and who he will be tomorrow and every day after that forever. Therefore, there's never a moment in our lives when he will not prove to be the dependable savior from sin that we need. Jesus is eternally reliable because he is eternally unchangeable. He never needs to be replaced. Nothing can be added to the perfect work he accomplished for us. And this is why Jesus must remain the absolute focal point of our faith and of our church community. Now, this is easier said than done, is it not? Because the world is filled with all kinds of teachings, systems of thought, philosophies that would lead us away from trusting in Christ alone. And so Hebrews 13:9 we're told to be vigilant not to be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings that would lead us away from looking to Christ alone. Don't be led astray, be vigilant. The battle is real. Now, for the original audience here, the teachings involved some of the physical regulations and sacrifices, including food regulations mentioned right there in verse 9. Supposedly, these rituals would help to ensure they stayed ceremonially clean and therefore able to approach God in a worthy way. But no human ritual can improve on God's plan to make us spiritually clean in his eyes. Look at verse 9, the second part of the verse. For it is good for the heart, the inner man, to be established or strengthened, is the idea of the word, by not by ritual, not by human works of righteousness, but by what? Grace. Not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. 
God's plan is not for us to find cleansing from sin from the outside in. God's plan is grace. Grace he applies to our hearts in order to cleanse us from the inside out. Jesus talked a lot about this in his ministry. What is God's grace anyway? God's grace is his undeserved favor and strength freely given to us to enable us to be and do what we could never be or do otherwise. Undeserved, unmerited, free, and given to us, not because we earn it or deserve it, but because Jesus has earned it for us. And it's his grace that's the source of both our salvation from sin and our ongoing spiritual growth, the strengthening that our heart needs to persevere in grace and following Jesus. Now, most of us probably aren't being tempted to adopt a complex system of ceremonial rituals and sacrifices as a means of gaining and acceptance with God. Probably if I looked at your journal, I'm not seeing you sketch out how you're going to you know, set up a tabernacle system at your house and bring ceremonies and have cleansing before dinner and all those kinds of things. But we need to understand how prone our hearts are to seek ways of earning God's favor that depend ultimately on our own efforts. We are constantly looking to ourselves rather than resting in God's grace in Christ. So we really do need always to be on guard and willing to categorically reject any teaching from any source or any heart inclination from inside of us that would lead us away from the grace that he is freely providing to us. That's why the means of grace are so important. That's why our pastors, week after week, urge us to pursue a relatively simple concept of the Christian life. Avail yourselves of the means of grace that God has given us. Not places where we earn God's grace, places where we discover it. The word of God, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship, the ordinances, Kind of like if you're hiking and you're thirsty and you're off trail and you're getting dehydrated and you're not sure you know, how you're going to make it back and then you come across a spring of fresh water and a waterfall and you just dive in. And there you're rehydrated and there you're refreshed. You're not earning anything. You're just jumping in where the refreshment exists. That's what the means of grace are to us. And that's why we need to keep holding them out to each other and participating in them. And if you're not participating in the means of grace regularly, or perhaps that explains why you find your heart not being strengthened by God's grace. So let's keep pursuing those means of grace together. Well, the ultimate source of this heart-strengthening grace is described in verse 10 with a word that might seem a little unfamiliar to us, but in the context of Hebrews made all the sense in the world to the original readers, and it's the word altar. Notice how verse 10 begins, we, followers of Jesus, have an altar. We possess an altar. There's an altar that belongs to us from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. So the term altar is a term, a religious term, describing the place that the sacrifice was offered to God. 
Here, the word altar is used to represent the cross, the place where Jesus offered the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And the meal we partake at the altar is Jesus. Faith in Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. We have perpetual access to this altar. It belongs to us and we are able to and must freely feast at and on this altar by faith at all times. But here's the rub. The the priests who were the source of some of the false teachings and who were trying to, most commentators think, shaming these early Christians who were turning away from Judaism by kind of mocking them. Hey, where's your ceremony? Where's your temple? Where's your sacrifice? Where's your incense? Where's your ritual? We have all that. Where's yours? And so the author's saying, you actually have an altar that they have no access to. They have no right to eat at that altar. They are excluded from the grace that flows from this altar because they weren't trusting in Christ's sacrifice. They were still in the temple offering sacrifices. And my friend, this is an argument as to why we shouldn't listen to false teachers who would teach you anything other than trusting in Christ alone as the source of everything you need. Why would we listen to anyone who doesn't even have access for for spiritual Guidance who doesn't have access to the altar on which Christ died, who themselves aren't feasting on the grace that Jesus provides through his sacrifice. Now, in verses 11 and 12, the author is going to explain why it is that we have access to Christ and his grace, while those who continued to offer those sacrifices in the temple didn't, by referencing the most significant day of sacrifice in the Jewish calendar, the highlight of their year. The the passage that Matt read from earlier taught in Leviticus 16. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Whew, this is a sermon in and of itself. On the day of it, so typically the priests would offer sacrifices and they would take some of the meat of that sacrifice as provision for their family. It was a way that they got provided for them because they couldn't have any business or land or anything like that. But on the day of the atonement and the sin offering that was offered there, that was not the case. A bull was slain to atone for the sins of the priest and his family, and then a goat was sacrificed for the sins of the rest of the people. And the blood of those sacrifices was taken into the Holy of Holies, the only time in the year where this happened. It was sprinkled over the mercy seat, but the bodies of the animals, the whole carcass, every bit of it was taken outside the camp to the place that was considered to be the place of ceremonial defilement to be completely consumed and burned up. Now, if you were a first century Jew and you heard about something being outside the camp, immediately you would know what that meant. It meant the place of banishment, the place of defilement, the place where the unclean thing must go. 
the place where the person or thing that is unfit to be in God's presence or in the community of God's people would have to be banished. It wasn't the place you wanted to be. And that's where they sent this as a symbol of the sin has to be removed from God's presence and consumed. So it goes out to this place of defilement. Well, look at verse 12. The point of verse 12 is what he's saying here is that the atoning sacrifices on the day of atonement were always intended to find their ultimate fulfillment in the greater, final, and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. It's hard for us to fully grasp the significance of what he's saying in verse 12 there. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God. The one who last week Kevin preached on as the one who's going to return one day in glorious judgment and final salvation. That Jesus first came to earth, entered into the brokenness of the the human condition. Earlier in Hebrews it says he was tempted in every way, just like we are, except he never sinned. He was the righteous one. He is the clean one. He is the one who had no defilement in himself. And yet, he willingly went outside the gate to the place of shame and defilement and uncleanness. And he did that for us. The undefiled one took on our defilement so that we, the defiled, verse 12 might be set apart as holy and be made clean from all the defilement of sin. Jesus did this for us. This is the heart of the gospel. If you're here and you're not yet a, a Christian or follower of Jesus, so glad you're here. And th- this is the, the central point that the Bible wants you to know that God has graciously provided for you a sacrifice so that your sin that defiles you before God who is holy can be completely removed and cleansed. Completely. Jesus did that. He went there outside the camp and suffered that shame. But we have to respond We have to respond to this message of good news. And that's what verse 13 is all about. Let us then go to him outside the camp. As we hear that Jesus went outside the camp to the place of uncleanness to offer a sacrifice for our sins. If we want our sins to be cleansed, we have to go where Jesus went. We have to respond in faith and say, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I'm going to, by faith, follow him there. If we go to the temple, he's saying, to the first century audience, Jesus isn't in the temple. Jesus is the temple who went outside the gate and suffered for our sins. That's where your sins are going to be cleansed. So you have to go there. And in going there, you must be willing to bear the disgrace and shame to take up our cross and to follow Jesus on the path of discipleship, to bear the reproach of the name of of Jesus. Why would we want to bear the shame of following Jesus outside the camp? Look at verse 14. Because we don't have an enduring city here. 
Instead, we seek the one to come. This, there's no earthly city that is our home. This isn't our kingdom. Our citizenship is in our eternal city. That unshakable kingdom, that's where our hope lies. And so we're not tied to this world that would say, oh no, I can't give up what I might have here or what I might lose if I follow Jesus. This world is in our home anyway, and this is exactly the point he makes in Hebrews chapter 11. We don't have time to explore it, but you can look back in Hebrews 11 and find that the great men and women of faith in Hebrews 11, what they had in common was their faith in the promise of God. And it bore out by them confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. They were living for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And that is what we are called to do, to follow Jesus, living for that kingdom, not anything we fear we might lose in this world. But as we follow Jesus, we do so as part of a new privileged people. We are now a new kingdom of priests who are qualified to offer God a new kind of sacrifice. God didn't just make us citizens of his kingdom. He made us priestly citizens with him as the high priest. And that brings us to our third point, worship God by offering to him the sacrifices of praise and love. Look at verses 15 and 16. Wherefore, through him, through Jesus, not in addition to Jesus, not as something other than Jesus, but through Jesus, let us, we who are walking by faith in Jesus, continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. So what is he saying here? Well, in light of the sacrifice that our great high priest Jesus made for us, through which he's established us as part of this kingdom of priests with perpetual access to the grace of God that strengthens our heart for this journey, through him... Let us now offer this different type of sacrifice. And this is a twist in the plot of the book of Hebrews. Because everywhere thus far in the book, when they talked about sacrifices and offering them to God, the point was we don't have to offer these sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. But now at the very end, he says, okay, now let's offer sacrifices to God. But again, it's a different kind of sacrifice, not a sacrifice offered in order to earn God's favor and forgiveness, but a sacrifice offered in response to the favor we already enjoy as a result of Christ's sacrifice for us. That's why it's through him. Listen, there's no command we can obey, no value we can display as a church or as an individual that would do anything for us if we aren't coming to God through Jesus. None of it matters. The only way we can please God is as we come to him through his son. That's it. And so through him, we offer sacrifices. These sacrifices are mentioned in the beginning of verse 15 and at the end of verse 16. This is very similar to the book of Romans. Kevin preached on a while back, not too long ago. For chapters 1 through 11, here's what God has done for you in the gospel. Isn't it good news? Now... Chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you in light of the mercies of God that you have experienced to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, an act of worship to God, which is uh, acceptable to him, pleasing to him. 
For that is your reasonable act of worship. See the similarity? That's exactly what he's saying here. And so let's look at these. First of all, we offer to God as redeemed, forgiven sinners through Christ the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now, there are many ways that our lips can praise God. And it's true that our mouths should always be a source of praise to our king. Some of your translations emphasize the idea of thankfulness, but the particular emphasis in this verse is as we confess his name. It says, offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Here's what I mean, especially the fruit of lips that confess the name of Christ, which makes sense in the context. Many of these Christians were being tempted to abandon Christ. They were being shamed and didn't, weren't sure if they could bear that shame. They were shrinking back from identifying with him in their culture. Well, we bring pleasure to God as an act of worship as we align ourselves with Jesus through public confession of faith in him. In other words, we don't deny him. We openly confess allegiance to his name. Jesus is Lord and Savior. I believe that and I'm following him. How do we do that? Well, we're going to witness some examples tonight of that in baptism. This is the first moment of our public confession where we stand publicly in the waters of baptism and publicly declare to everyone who is there, I am, my allegiance is to Jesus. I am identifying with his life, burial, and resurrection and following him. I believe him. It's going to be a beautiful thing to see that tonight. And if you're a member of Grace Harbor Church, you've experienced the waters of baptism since it's a requirement for membership. If you're here this morning and you're a professing Christian and you've not been baptized, you've not taken this first step of public confession of your allegiance to Jesus, you might ask yourself, why am I not doing that? What is holding me back from a willingness to publicly confess through baptism that I belong to Jesus and he is mine? I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's a question I think you should ask. Another way we confess our allegiance to Jesus is corporately as we gather together for corporate worship, as we pause our lives every Sunday Put down everything we're doing, gather together as a community, and with one another confess, we are devoted to you, Jesus. We believe in you, your Lord. We sing, we confess creeds, we read scripture, we pray, we sit under the word, all of which says to the world around us, Jesus is Lord of our lives. That's why gathering regularly is so important. Why we need to make it a priority in the rhythms of our life. But more than that, notice the verse, the emphasis of verse 15 is that we do this continually. This isn't something simply, hey, I did that at my baptism. Or, yeah, I do that on Sunday, but then I go out into the world and I shrink back. This is an offering that we always are offering to God as every day of our lives we're willing to publicly identify I'm a follower of Jesus, which is sometimes easier said than done in this world. Travis shared with me an article recently. I I didn't actually read the whole thing because it was a long article. I need, like, short articles. But the point of the article was 
tracing the history of the Christian culture, the, the view of the culture toward the Christian world in the West, going from Christian positive to Christian neutral to Christian negative where we are today. To identify with Christ often is inherently a negative thing in the world's eyes, which can cause us to shrink back. But think of Jesus bearing the shame outside the gate. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus thought little of that shame. He despised it. It was nothing to him because of the joy set before him. And therefore, we are to follow that example and be willing to confess allegiance to him before others, being quick to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, devoted to him and kingdom values in a humble way, at work, at home, in our neighborhood, continually as followers of Jesus. As God sees his children scattered throughout the world, openly confessing allegiance to his son, it brings him great delight. As through Jesus we gathered together this morning and shared confession, God has been smiling over this gathering. As through Jesus we've lifted our imperfect praise, but through Jesus accepted as perfect to God. And incredibly, as we confess him, he's not ashamed to confess us. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to be identified as our brother as we identify with him. Imagine that. And God says in Hebrews 11 that he's not ashamed to be called our God as we follow him and live for that city that has foundations. So it's through our lips that we offer pleasing sacrifices to God, but it's also through our lives. It's not just what we say, but it's how we live. And that brings us to verse 16. Notice the verse begins with the encouragement not to neglect these two things. Neglect means to fail to give something the attention it deserves. Don't neglect to do good, which is an action word. It involves proactively entering into and engaging the lives of others for their physical, emotional, and spiritual good. Entering into the story and the lives of those around us for their flourishing. Much like Hebrews 13, 1 through 4 described. The ways that we love others. But notice, secondly, the the word to share. So he says, don't neglect to do good and to share. And the author is suggesting in the grammar there that what he especially is meaning is that we are to do good to others, in particular by sharing with them. Remember that book, Everything I Learned? No, I learned in kindergarten. Was that a book? Am I wrong about that? This is one of the first things we teach our kids, right? Sharing. It's a value we all agree is important. Well, we don't outgrow that. The word share here is actually a beautiful word. The underlying word is the word for fellowship or communion. It has the idea of having something in common with another person that brings us together. Some of you may have seen Kevin at a Friars game. You got to if you haven't. So if you're at the Friars game and there's 20,000 fans there from all kinds of backgrounds and they're playing Villanova and there's a minute left and the Friars are up by five trying to close the game, it's going to be loud and you're going to have people that you have nothing in common with but we're filled with ecstatic joy. Oh, he's finally listening. It's filled with ec- <laughs> ecstatic joy because we have in common this shared love for the Friars that's 
holding us together. That's the idea of this word. And so the writer turns this word into a verb and says that's how we're to live. We're to invite others to participate with us, hold in common with us the resources with which God has blessed us. So we do good to others by inviting them to share in what God has given us. I know I used this illustration like four years ago when I preached here. But I'm going to use it again. Because I love cookies. I love chocolate chip cookies. Hmm. I love chocolate chip cookies that are fresh out of the oven, still warm, a little bit gooey, but not undercooked. This is a bad time to be using this illustration, right? Right before lunch. So imagine that my wife made a batch of cookies one morning, and she said, oh, I'm running an errand. Let me drop off a couple cookies to Jonathan and surprise him. She drops them off. They're still warm to the touch. She, there's two of them, one each in um, a, um, a napkin, and she heads out, and they're not going to last long. I'm going to dig right into them. But then all of a sudden, you come into my office. What are you doing here? Bad timing. <laughs> You're visiting the, the front office. Hey, isn't Jonathan's office back there? Let me pop in. Oh, hey. No, hopefully not. Hopefully I say, hey, perfect timing. My wife just dropped these cookies off. They're still warm. Would you like one? What am I doing? I'm inviting you to participate in a blessing that I've been given. And there's inherent sacrifice in that, isn't there? I'm going to have less to enjoy now. Thanks a lot. But at the same time, I've, I've expanded the circle of the blessing that I've received so that you can participate with me. That's what sharing, that's what this word means. God has entrusted to us so much time, physical energy, spiritual energy, emotional energy, professional skills and experience, Spiritual wisdom, knowledge, and experience we've grown in over the years, material resources, possessions, a house, a car, a spare bedroom, foster care. And so, as we think about what God has given us, ask yourself Am I using these resources to do good to others by inviting them in to participate with me in those resources for their good? Doing good and sharing assumes a person on the other end, right? Particularly people who need support. Galatians 6 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So there is an obligation, particularly on us, to do good and share with one another within the family of of Christ. But it doesn't end there. He says, do good to all. I think a great example of this would be the Good Samaritan, who in the story is being set forth as an example of a person who does possess eternal life, who has experienced God's grace, evidenced by the way in which he loves. And he didn't wake up that day, Luke 10, you can read it later if you aren't familiar with the story. He didn't wake up that day planning on devoting or sharing his resources with another, but as he walked along the path and was living his life and saw a man in dire need, his heart was moved with compassion, and not out of duty, but out of heart love, he invited that man to share in what God had blessed him with. 
at great cost and sacrifice to himself. This is what the passage is talking about. And as we do this, as we live lives within community and outside community in a way that does good to others by sharing with them, we fulfill the great commandment by loving God and loving neighbor. We're loving neighbor by doing good and sharing with them. We're loving God by offering to him a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. God is pleased with this sacrifice because it's a display of the exact kind of love that Jesus has given to us. Jesus entered into our story and shared with us his grace, his righteousness, his cleanness, and his inheritance as the older brother in the kingdom. And we who have experienced that grace from Jesus are compelled by it to extend that grace to others. Let's be a church that worships God by vibrantly inviting others to share in our resources. As we close, look at verse 17. Kevin would be upset if I didn't mention this verse. This actually closes the loop of this passage in two ways. Verse 7, in one way it closes the loop because verse 7 begins this section by addressing former leaders. Here he's going to address current leaders in the church. Leaders who, verse 17 says, are keeping watch over our souls. The phrase keeping watch means literally losing sleep to care for us. To shepherd our souls. And how are they seeking to shepherd our souls? Why is this here? Well, that's the second way it closes the loop because the way they're shepherding our souls is by urging us week after week, day after day, to persevere in following Jesus and living lives of sacrifice that reflect that. And so what he's saying when he calls us to obey our leaders and submit to our current leaders is as they faithfully, lovingly, with great care and, uh, and, and love, seek to shepherd us into devotion to Christ so that we would never turn away from Jesus and lose that source of, of heart-strengthening grace that is the only means by which we can flourish spiritually, submit to their leadership. It's a gift from God. Obey and submit to them as week after week they urge us with the simple message, keep following Jesus. Let them shepherd us into that path of faithfulness. Follow their lead with humility. And actually the second way that the loop closes is back all the way to chapter 12 verse 28 where we started. That referenced the unshakable kingdom that is our future. Well, here, verse 28 says, excuse me, uh, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So looking ahead to that day, do you know that the spiritual leaders God has given you as a gift to us. To God loves us so much. He so wants us to continue to follow the path of following Jesus and bringing pleasure to God through these, this life of worship that he's given us spiritual leaders to help us stay faithful. But one day those leaders are going to give an account for us. 
That, I don't even know what to think about that completely. It's, it's hard to fathom what that day is going to be like, how that's going to work. But in some sense, Kevin and, and Travis and Kyle and Tom and even Jonathan, just a couple of weeks, are going to stand and give an account for their shepherding work for us. Have we followed Jesus to the end? Or have we drifted away? Well, our desire on that day is for that to be a sweet family reunion. A time of joy, both for our pastors and for us, as together on that day in the unshakable kingdom, when everything else is fallen away and all that we have is our king and his kingdom and eternal life to enjoy, we are celebrating because we are all there. And God's grace has brought us there. If they have to give an account with grief on that day, that means it's unprofitable for us because that means we didn't make it. We don't want that. And so let's, by grace, humbly submit to our leaders as they urge us to keep following Jesus week after week in our life together as a community. And by the way, October is National Pastor Appreciation Month. Aren't you thankful for the pastors God's given us? Not as, a, not as a way of exalting them as men, although we're thankful for them as men, but as the gift they are from God to us and their faithful ministry to us. And so think about that. Pray for them and send them a note of encouragement before the month's over, just thanking them for their work and their ministry on our behalf. And the greatest way we can thank them is by continuing to follow Jesus as they lead us. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we pray that your spirit would seal it in our hearts. We thank you for Jesus, your perfect provision of everything we need. We pray that we would be faithful by your grace to feast on the grace he gives us at the altar where he died for our sins. And we pray that none of us here who would fall away, but that one day we would be together celebrating your grace as trophies of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.